What's up, everybody? Jay Miller here bringing another Productivity in Tech podcast. I am a developer who is passionate about helping other developers create things for other developers. Uh, that's a mouthful. But I am here today with Jonathan. Is it Megan or Moggin? It is Megan. Thank you. First time. Yes. All right. So I'm here with Jonathan Megan. And uh, Jonathan is someone that I met what about two years ago now yeah i think i think that sounds right yeah about two years ago when i was looking into uh doing a little bit more with automation and automation things and we connected on twitter and have been kind of just online stalking each other since and i sent him a message out earlier this week saying hey you ever been on a podcast and he was like i no i'm like do you want to be on one he's like sure let's do it so we're here and we're going to talk about some stuff. So for the for the listeners out there, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do. All right. So uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm really grateful that I have the chance to be here. So thanks, Jay. Um, and uh, I'm a computer scientist. And uh, I like to say that I build imaginary objects for money as a job. I work in the healthcare sector for a large multinational whatever comes after multinational healthcare company um, and it's a wonderful place to work i really like the fact that there are so many uh uh opportunities for automation right because this is the productivity and tech podcast um, but there's a lot more than more than that so i think that it's sort of fitting jay that you and i first bonded over automation absolutely and i think that was what made it so interesting is that when I think of large companies, I always think of like it had to it had to have everything together to get so large. So in my mind, there wouldn't be a lot of opportunities for automation, but uh, often our perceived reality and actual reality are very different. Right. So I think that one of the things I would challenge is I would challenge the notion that a company has to have their things together in order to succeed. And I would say that that might be true in the absence of capital, but capital overcomes a lot. Right. So the right. ability to hire people and create potentially what you and I would call an inefficient system can still be good enough. Right. Um, and I think that your experience in the Marines probably has taught you about those kinds of situations as well. You know, it was it's interesting with that, too, because, you know, in the Marine Corps, you would you would see things that were completely backwards. And you're like, there's how how are we managing? You know, we're we're considered like the greatest fighting force in the world or whatever. And like you have people who have literally never lived outside of their parents' homes that make up like people with top secret security clearances and are like the last bastion of security for like international secrets get released. And sometimes it shows, but I, I definitely can understand how you can have a large uh, company or military branch or, or any type of organization that uh, while again from the outside it may look like everything's to, you know being held together but in reality it's all being held together with like duct tape 
Right. And, and I think that that goes to, you know, that old notion of sort of the duct tape programmer, right? Not as a bad thing, but as someone who's able to uh, sort of apply duct tape judiciously, right? Um, and, and therefore achieve something awesome. Now, when, when you were in the Marines, right? Like, like it was, I mean, I'm sure it was more than security clearance, but did you see operational things that also felt kind of backwards to you? Um, sometimes. And, and I will say that there were often times where things looked backwards as I was in the position, but then once I had been promoted to a higher level, I noticed like, okay, this is why this was this way. Now it makes sense to me as much as it sucked at the time. Right. It's kind of the best option that we have. Right, right. And that's something that I really struggled with as I've, you know, sort of gained seniority and amassed experience over time. Right. Um, I, it sort of it sort of makes me really wonder, like, there's always a reason. It might not be a reason that you like. It might not be a reason that you consider to be good. But there's always a reason that something is a certain way. And I think that that has a lot. There's a lot that we can learn from that fact. But there's also a lot that we can learn from encountering that fact in the wild. Absolutely. And the thing is, we can often use duct tape or I guess in our case, like those automations to really highlight an area that needs work. In fact, that's one of the things that I do regularly with uh, the audio and video editing that I do. So uh, one of the video tools that I use uh, just because it's what my client wanted me to use is Camtasia. And Camtasia is a really cool screen capture, like video creation tool. However, it's not the premier um, video editing tool. So while capturing, you know, your content is great, editing it and publishing it and getting everything dialed in the way you want it to, not really the best. But for me, what I would do is I would have to create a process that would take the audio side of that, of that video, remove it from the video, and then work in it and then put it all back together seamlessly. And in my mind, I'm like, it would just be easier if Camtasia had better editing functions or if they allowed me to use some of the tools that I already use. And in the latest update, they actually did put in some fixes. So it was like, I, I'm sitting here like hitting keyboard maestro commands. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. And that's one of the greatest feelings ever. Whenever you have an automation that made something very simple that is finally um, eliminated or the need for that automation is eliminated from your system. Right. And I, I think that you, when you use the word process, right, like you used it in a very interesting way because software and automation is most effective. It's not the only time it's effective, but it's most effective when you have a repeatable process, right? Right. So I think that I think that that's one of those things like when you were hitting those keyboard maestro commands, that was because you could rely on the repeatability of the process that you had devised and the process that you had created. So I think that that comes back to, in many ways, you know, what you see in these larger organizations where there's a ton of process, right? And that process, if it's repeatable, um, can, can, be, can be automated and, and oftentimes optimized in the process. 
Yeah, and that's the that's the big key is that you have to be able to identify the process before you can start going in and and automating things. And I think that's where a lot of developers, a lot of um, system administrators and other IT uh, based folks get in trouble with automating things is that they don't see all that needs to be seen in the picture. They're just thinking about this one process. If if all of a sudden it's like, I need to shrink a bunch of photos down, like, okay, there are a bunch of different tools that you can use to shrink those photos down. I mean, you can use Photoshop, you can use image magic, or you can use um, the photo imaging library from Python. And like, I've used all of these tools, but I have to then think about, okay, but what's the next step? Because if I'm just shrinking them down and, and not worrying about any type of compression artifacting or, or anything like that, or if I'm not worried about what the end format is, well, that might give me a reason to use one tool, but if all of a sudden I need like a specific TIFF that is uh, that uses progressive scanning, well, then I can't use certain tools. I can't use Pill for that. I have to use something like an Image Magic, or if I need to make sure that certain ratios are maintained, like that that gets me a lot, and and I see it all the time when I'm talking with people and I'm working with them and sharing like automation stuff, and they're like. Oh yeah, I just pull down the HTML and then load it in and put my stuff in. And it's like, well, are you are you actually looking at what is happening with that information after it's left your hands? Because you might be making your job easier, but making someone else's job a lot harder. You know, I, I that that hits home with me because so much of automation is contextual, right? Um, and the stuff that works for my workflow, again, because of the specifics that you mentioned, right? Like you talked about it with images, but it could be so much more than that. It could be the process of filling out paperwork, something which I have maybe done a lot of automating at work, right? Uh, because everything's sort of quasi-digital now. Um, so that means that you are able to access a lot of things with a browser or potentially just fill in fields on a PDF or something like that. Um, it also, uh, Jay, I don't, I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, I actually got into computers because my handwriting was so bad as a child um, that my teachers were like, yeah, you can type whatever you want. Please, in fact, type type as much as you want. Uh, and then something <laughs> It just sort of came from there. My first, my first experience borrowing my mom's computer um, after I had written a few programs at uh, at the school computer lab in like first or second grade. So, um, but uh, but 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 back to this notion of context. I think that the context is key because if you're creating any kind of automation on a computer, you're really creating something which is, um, if not actually a program, then certainly akin to a program. And that's really where the context comes in. And, you know, we, we talked about the idea of, of having the full process. Uh, I think one of the, the best books that outlines this is um, the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And, and in it, I mean, he really does break down like the reasoning for checklists, why checklists are so important. You know, they talk about the idea of like a pilot having to go through a checklist every time. He might have flown hundreds of times, thousands of times, but he still wants to go through that checklist because the one time that you don't go through that checklist, that's the time that, you know, 
you can get into a serious accident or things can happen. And that's something that with automation is kind of a good thing, but can also be a dangerous thing. I think you have to make sure that you are crossing every T, dotting every I when you create these tools or these processes, because any steps that are skipped, um, especially when you're talking about things like the healthcare industry or the military industry, um, those consequences can be grave. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about that. What what are some examples of the things that you have been able to automate in just your experience? So uh, I think that it. I think that my journey to automation began by being a really lazy high school student and. Uh, I would write programs on my calculator to do all kinds of homework for me. Then I got an internet connected computer or something that had a reliable internet connection at least. And then I started automating more kinds of homework um, because, you know, there were foolish assignments or things that, uh, that just weren't worth my time as a high school student. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> all of my programming did not get me girls as I had hoped that it would, but uh, um, I'm very happy now later in life so <laughs> so it all it all it all worked out um i think that i think that i realized the power of automation when i wrote a thank you note generator for my high school graduation and that was when i sort of saw that it was like it could really save you time it wouldn't just it wouldn't just remove the tedious work but it could actually optimize and save time um, and then when i became the, the manager of um, the Advanced Operating Systems Laboratory at my college, I started automating a lot of system administration tasks and sort of found that not only does it save time, but it also reduces errors. So if you fast forward to my time in the workplace, um, a lot of it actually involves healthcare and uh, it would amaze you the number of spreadsheets that I have processed uh, in different jobs that might have really cool sounding titles, but in fact, it just comes down to processing spreadsheets. And I think that that's an amazing, an amazing thing to realize and sort of accept about yourself that like, you're going to be processing spreadsheets for a really long time, but you're gonna be processing the coolest spreadsheets and you're gonna be doing it so fast and you're going to just be awesome at it. And it's going to make companies like a ton of money and it's, it's going to be great. Right. Uh, and once you accept that, I think that sort of opens up your horizons. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of other people who society will tell you that they have glamorous jobs or very interesting jobs. I find my job fascinating. And I think that computer science um, is just a wonderful thing. And it lets you tackle problems in miraculous ways and gives you a terrific tool for interacting with your universe. Um, but I'm still a lazy guy at heart. And, uh, and that means if I got to process spreadsheets to remove the main constraint, the main bottleneck in my personal process, uh, I'm going to do it. So you talked about the main bottleneck in, in your process. For me, that is often people and find it really hard to automate people. I've tried it. It doesn't work that well. Um, what is your secret to getting around, um, I guess, just having to wait for a boss to do something or wait for a, a colleague to uh, do their end before you can be lightning fast on your side? Okay, so I can actually make this pretty real. Um, we had an issue at one point where some of our Mac OS endpoint devices um, were developing problems due to 
few pieces of software fighting one another in a corporate environment. Um, right. And in order to fix that, we created a piece of software that will rapidly run a series of what amount to configuration unit tests on your laptop. Um, and it can run about, I don't know, 90 to 95 of them in about 25 seconds, right. Um, on the average, on the average Mac, Mac endpoint. And what happened was we found that this saved a ton of troubleshooting with other people. If you go to someone and you say, I can relieve your burden, they will they will walk with you hand in hand into the beautiful sunset and toward the rainbow because they want you to automate it because you can remove their burden. So I find that in certain cases, people are very amenable to having their work automated because they would rather be focusing on a different part of it or something like that. In terms of the places where you can't really automate people, what we did was we had that program automatically generate a support ticket description that you could actually copy and paste from your terminal directly into the web form. Um, and that saved a lot of people time and also increased clarity a great deal by enabling you to have an unambiguous ticket description that basically said, hey, here's exactly what's wrong with my laptop, right? Or nothing's wrong with my laptop, but something's still wrong, right? Um, and that that sort of removed a lot of ambiguity from the process and uh, made people more effective. So I think that, that that's one thing. Another thing I've done um, is when I'm waiting for a ticket to be approved, maybe it's an access management ticket or something. Um, and, and my boss, my boss doesn't know this, but if he listens to this episode, he's going to hear it now. Um, I actually have a couple canned emails that I have quick, quick, um, uh, quick keyboard shortcuts for inserting, and one of them is an access management request email. So I'll be able to send it to the people who need to approve a ticket um, at work and basically say, uh, hey, you're all on the hook for this. I'm just officially letting you know before the system lets you know, right? And nine times out of 10, they are thrilled to get another thing off their plate. Um, and I think that that's one of the things. So automating the link between you and them and the communication between you and them and removing the error prone pieces of human communication can optimize that whole process a great deal. Yeah, I definitely like that. Uh, one of the things that I also do is the uh, the canned emails. Uh, thank you, Text Expander. Uh, you don't sponsor the show, but I, I definitely utilize the crap out of you. So uh, one of the things with my emails are I I can get very emotional in my uh, responses at times. And in order to prevent that, I have created a series of responses that are a little nicer than I would be. And, and that does go a long way. I mean, I think the uh, what's the saying you can you can catch more more flies with honey than vinegar uh so for me it's like i might have a phrase that i want to use and have it translate to thank you so much have a great day i will be in touch or something you know something of the sort and my the recipient is none the wiser and it also helps keep me from blowing up on someone but i do like what you said about creating automations not just for yourself but for the people around you for for again the the pre-input and the posts and the post out or i guess the output and where it would go on after it leaves your hands because they wind up embracing the tools that you've made and to 
I guess, counter in that area. Um, I have actually made automations that have made people resentful because it felt like a direct attack on their work. And I, I think a lot of that is, you know, more like old school, like I get paid to crank out widgets. So if your little program can crank out widgets faster than I can, then my value has been decreased instead of embracing it and saying, oh, with this, I can crank out more widgets too. Um, so I think that it a lot of how you automate and how you do things is the way that you structure it, the way you introduce it to your colleagues, to your superiors, and the fact that you're willing to be so open with your tools, especially in today's age where, you know, they talk about how everybody, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there, a lot of people looking for jobs, and a lot of it is dog eat dog. So like, if you can crank out, you know, 100 widgets an hour, and you're Ollie can only crank out 50. Well, do you really want to help them? Because when it comes time for the promotion, you know, it looks like your performance is better. But I think that's a nearsighted thought. And I really love that you are willing to share to not just improve your own performance, but to improve, but to up improve the performance of your uh, entire workplace. So I think that I think that there are a few reactions that I have to what you said because it really it, it really I, I I feel what you're what you're saying here. Um, the first is if I understood earlier in my career the importance of being liked rather than of being right, I think I would have had a very different experience historically. Um, however, that got me where I am today, so I'm I'm pretty happy. Um, I think that. Uh, when you were talking, the first thing that came to mind was actually Jessie Frizzell and a tweet that she had. Um, I don't know if you follow her on on, on Twitter, uh, Jess Fraz. She's amazing. I do. She's great, right? She's so smart um, and seems really cool. I think that, that uh, one of her tweets really comes to mind. Um, I've begun referring to it as I saw someone else refer to this tweet as Frizzell's first law of delegation, which is hire people who automate their jobs and keep giving them jobs. And nowhere is that more real to me um, in the corporate environment than software quality, where there's a large portion of the shop that is actually um, manual software testing, which in my opinion, the type of manual software testing that I've encountered is a little bit like flushing money down the toilet to prove that the plumbing works, right? You've made your point, but you're never going to see that cash again. So I think that that just what you said, it's about how you sort of bring the person along and introduce it. It's those soft skills that really matter because um, if, if they like you, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're right or not, um, you can work with them and you can you can achieve something great together. And just to make this really, really real, when you free up manual software testers who are good, right? When you free up good manual software testers from doing repetitive work over and over again, that sort of work, what you end up with is you end up with people who have more time for exploratory testing and actually finding bugs. So you're able to allow them to specialize and do the fun stuff really um and, and everyone gets more effective in the process i absolutely agree and one of the things that i wanted to ask you about is you know with 
with the move into the healthcare sector out of the startup industry, uh, there's such a big mental shift there where a lot of people, uh, I would even say myself included, I would, I think I like the startup industry because there is more opportunity for me to move outside of my, you know, perceived area and do things that I normally wouldn't have interaction with. But you also get limited in uh, the resources that are available to you uh, when you're in a smaller company. And that is something that now I, I mean, even as a, a small business owner, I see that when I want to, you know, come up with some new tool or I want to uh, buy some tool that I can use to automate a large portion, portion of my job. And I look at it and it's like, oh, okay, let me call my accountant. And my accountant just says no. Um, so I, I definitely get that. Is that something that you've seen as well? Just the, the ability to do more um, because there are more resources available to you? So I think that it all balances out. And the reason for that is because when you're under the financial pressure, you find a way to do more with less, right? Versus mm -hmm. finding a way to do more with more. And I think that, that the inefficiency of what is potentially a very large system in a lot of the corporate environments that exist, um, at least around the US, I'm sure other countries have similar things. Um, but uh, a lot of those inefficiencies uh, might slow you down in certain ways, and the system and support that's available might free you up. So, like one thing that is um, expensive at a lot of companies can actually be in-house infrastructure, can be ridiculously expensive. Um, but the cloud, sort of as a methodology, not a destination, but as sort of a methodology, offers a variety of efficiency gains, both financial as well as um, as sort of time savings, right? So the ability to sort of cons up infrastructure really, really quickly um, is, is sort of amazing. So uh, then, of course, you have the privilege of running it and managing it yourself, which then sort of makes you wonder, maybe there's no such thing as a free lunch, because if you're saving it here, you're spending it somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. Compare that to the time when I was in startup land, and I think that I had to be a little bit more judicious, um, and I definitely had more options to be judicious um, because of the fact that I was kind of on a shoestring budget. One of the reasons that I left startups was the sort of obsession with finding more funding. Um, you know, the joke is that no one wants to be addicted to opium, uh, OPM being other people's money. <laughs> I get that now. At first, I was like, huh, oh, okay. But yeah, I I totally get that. And and that's something that is interesting because what I see, you know, some of the success stories that I've seen um, lately, just as someone who does, you know, a lot of work in the productivity space is companies who created a thing to make their job easier and then wound up marketing the thing instead of whatever they were originally trying to sell. Uh, one of the biggest examples of that is the team that created Basecamp. Uh, it was so interesting that they started out as a design agency, 
and development shop. And then they created this in-house project management tool and then realized that what they had was very unique and very effective and started just selling the tool. And they, you know, they are a 100% bootstrapped company. And I think that that is, I mean, that's the dream that, I mean, that's my personal dream is, you know, I, I don't want to accept money from investors. I want the people that I'm serving to invest in the company with their dollars. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why, even though I'm an editor and I work with developers uh, on their content creation, it's very important to me that I continue to create content myself and give back to the community that feeds me. So, you know, it's not that we needed another thing in common, Jay, but I really, I really hear what you're saying in a lot of ways, because um, I also, my team does a lot of, I'll call it engineering for engineering. So making products for other developers um, to, to, to consume. And it's much more important to me that I'm serving them and making their lives better and producing that sort of, I mean, you can look at it in a negative light, reducing developer on discomfort or suffering or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you can also look at it as trying to produce something that is, as I once heard it called a delightful developer experience and a, attempting to achieve that, I think, uh, puts you very close to your, I'm going to use the term customer, but to the people who are consuming your services and that keeps those feedback loops tight, which I think ultimately does make you more effective. Yeah, it does. And, and the thing with that is, I mean, you might, if you've listened to the one of the last episodes we put out with Kyle Cronin, I I mentioned to him uh, as he was talking about creating applications as a learning tool to progress his career. I I asked, well, have you thought about open sourcing the code for the tools that you create? And in his mind, he was like, well, the code isn't all that complicated, so I've never thought about it and don't still don't think I would. And for me, it was a very different answer of I don't care how simple or complicated it is. I want as many people to see what I'm doing, not for the sake of maybe they'll buy it, but for the sake of if they don't know what's happening, they can use it as a learning device. If they do know what's happening with it and can improve it, then I'm still being helped again. I, I wasn't upset when Camtasia came out with, you know, the batch processing tool that that, you know, basically made the hours of work that I had put into automating that process obsolete. I was happy because it was like, well, now I know that this is going to perform better, more uh, effective, more efficient than anything that I could have done because it's closer to the metal and I think that is something that our little community of automators is so great about doing is not just saying, hey, here's, you know, hey, I did this thing or hey, I do this thing or this is how I make my job easier, but here's how I do it. And being able to engage the community, have them come on the show and talk about the things that they're doing, have them join the Slack groups or talk to them on Twitter and be able to go back and forth we wind up learning things that we would have not 
uh, gleaned on our own. I, I agree completely, and that's been my experience because I think that there's always going to be a fundamental asymmetry um, between sort of technical folks and their non-technical customers. The reason is is that non-technical customers have to be experts of their problem domain. Um, so you know, let's say let's say they sell widgets, right? They need to know everything about selling those widgets. If you're an engineer, if you're a developer, whatever, making tools for the widget sales folks, then you not only need to understand your craft well enough as a craftsperson to be able to say, hey, I know how to build software to solve problems, but you need to then have sufficient expertise, again, that context, that all important context, you then need to have expertise in the problem space of selling widgets in order to understand the problem and sort of partner with them to build those solutions. So I think you're right. Oh man, as as someone who has been in the, the midst of uh, business startupness, I, I could not agree more and oh, I could not agree more. And I, I really uh, like that, you know, you bring up that point because there have been tools that I've used and I've been outside of my element and I knew I was outside of my element and I, I wanted, like, I longed for just someone to be like, it's okay. I've got you. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a professional salesman. You know, you just you just continue to crank your widgets. You're fine. And then I'll I'll help you. Uh, but I, I mean, when you're a small team, that's just the way that it is. And I, I definitely can understand why the uh, the allure of having the stability of like, I don't have to worry about development and sales because I work for, a, you know, a company of a thousand people and a hundred of those people are salespeople. Like that, that makes life easier. Sometimes the best automation is removing yourself from the situation. Absolutely. I mean, I've listen when everyone else is the problem, right? Uh, the answer is you might be the problem. Uh, and I've been the problem. I've been the problem enough that I know when to get out now, or at least I, I like to think I do. So yeah, I hear it. Definitely. And, and I guess before we, before we wrap up the, the last thing, um, something that I, I mentioned in the after show with Josh Josh Svazik is if you know everyone, you know everything. And I say that in in the plea for people to get get connected, get involved in the community. It is so hard to create and automate when there is a barrier or a gap in your knowledge. And the only way that you can successfully fill those is if you stop trying to do it all yourself and, and start relying on the wisdom of the people around you. And, and it took me a long time to figure that out. And I, I think that I would be a lot further in my development career and my, uh, what's the phrase, my automation uh, expertise had I leaned on some of the people that I now interact with on a daily basis. I, I absolutely. Um, I think that you never want to be the smartest person in the room. You always want to be the stupidest person in the room or maybe the second stupidest person in the room. 
um, because you really want to be able to learn from other other people. That's one of the things that I love about my job is that I work on a team with incredibly smart, committed individuals. Um, and I think that uh, it's one of the things that matters to me about my, about my personal life. My wife is many times more intelligent than I am, and I respect her tremendously. And uh, my advice for anyone who wants to listen is you find your best friend, you make sure they're smarter than you, and then you marry them. And uh, it's worked, worked pretty well for me. <laughs> Would she say the same thing? That uh, I, I I hope not, but uh, but I'll take. <laughs> well, all right. Well, this has been such a great conversation, and we've got an after show to get to. So before we do that, uh, I have to let everyone know uh, if you want to hear more from Jonathan as far as productivity and automation and things. Well, we're going to be talking about it a little bit more in the after show when he grills me. Uh, about whatever he wants, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so if you want to catch that content, you have to become a premium member and you can only do that at productivityintech.com slash memberships. If you go there, uh, you can sign up. It's $10 a month or $100 a year. You not only get access to all of the bonus content from all the shows, but you also get access to our pit premium membership group inside of our public and freely available Slack channel uh, where you can talk with previous guests and other premium members. And we talk a lot about Pit as a podcast, as a methodology, and as a business. Uh, a lot of the business decisions I've made have come from the awesome people in that group. And you can be one of them. You also will be connected with me where I reach out to every premium member at least once a week to see how they are doing in their walk in productivity and their walk in tech. But that's at productivityintech.com slash memberships. And you can go to productivityintech.com for more information on that. Before we wrap up, Jonathan, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It's literally my pleasure. Um, you know, happy to come back anytime. And uh, you keep rocking it because you're great to follow on Twitter. So thank you. Awesome. Well, let everyone know how they can connect with you uh, if they want to. Uh, so uh, the best way to find me is on Twitter. Um, I am Yonkeltron, Y-O-N-K-E-L-T-R-O-N, which has been my handle pretty much everywhere uh, since time immemorial. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to Productivity in Tech Podcast. I've been your host, Jay Miller. Uh, and this is my guest, Jonathan Megan, and a special thanks to Nadir Omawali for the use of his song, A Hustler in Spite of Myself, for the intro and outro music. And that's going to do it for this week. I am excited for next week. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at KJAYMiller. And of course, for the latest and greatest news in productivity in tech, be sure to follow them as well at prod underscore in underscore tech. That's going to do it for Jonathan, myself, and Productivity in Tech. I'm Jay Miller, and I will talk to you next All right, so are you ready for the after show? I am so ready. I was born ready. Awesome. So at the end of every show, I have asked a lot of questions. I have made a lot of statements, and I have probably posed more questions for you and given you more questions for me. So... What I'm going to do is I'm going to pass the host baton over to you. This is now your show to talk as much or as little as you like with me as your guest. And I promise to be an open book. I will answer any and all questions you ask. 
But at this point, the show is yours. All right. Well, you got to start telling me, when did you start automating and was it pre or post Marines? Um, I think it was pre Marines, but not two pre-marines so i actually might have actually i think it would be during the marine corps uh one of the earliest times i can remember automating something was for my very first deployment um i was on a rapid deployment team and our job was basically you had two years on this team and i actually wound up doing a third year uh i guess because they liked me i don't know but the first year you are supposed to learn the second year you are supposed to teach. And my first year, we actually had a shortage of uh, people that stayed on and I wound up having to do both. So in order to do that, a lot of the steps that we would have to learn, we wound up creating a bunch of scripts for. Uh, and, and in the military, when we set things up, I mean, we have to have we have to be sure that they are set up properly. In fact, one of the things that they do is they give us scripts that we are to run. And it basically has the information that we need, you know, plugged and ready to go. And a lot of that, you know, there are times where if the script is wrong, we have to then identify where it's wrong and then create our solutions on the fly. Uh, so one of my first automations was basically a test that uh, it would it would implement the script. And then if that didn't work, it would basically like split the script up into different files and then run each portion of it and test for the expected outcome so that you could know like, OK, it's somewhere somewhere right here is breaking. And from there, I was able to continue on and. Uh, troubleshoot from that point and you know it it's it only takes one 48 hour like setup period of no sleep to realize the power of automation because uh we we had basically 72 hours to set up before a typhoon was going to crash into uh the area we were serving and uh, yeah, I spent the first two of those three days awake and trying to troubleshoot an issue. So after that, I was a huge fan of like, OK, let's create automation. Let's embrace it. And then let's create automations that test the automations. Right. So, OK, so so then what I'm hearing you say is that you not only <laughs> you not only had the ultimate on call experience, right, but that experience actually moved you in the direction of automation based on your own personal pain. Oh yeah. And, and I mean, that's the thing is uh, innovation comes from pain. Like they talk about the best artists are usually the most tormented. And, you know, I, I feel like automation is no, no side effect of that. Like, I mean, like it's no, uh, no, I don't even know what to say for that. It's, it, automation is no different. You wind up creating tools that ease the pain so that you don't have to continuously endure them. And I, I think that that's where the bulk of my automations exist is where, oh, I'm so bored. I don't want to do this anymore. You know what? Let me just create something that pushes the buttons for me so I don't have. To. Right. 
Right. Now, now let me ask you a question. Other than your pain, did you experience a point of diminishing returns as you were up for, you know, 48 hours, right? Did you find that you got less effective in your troubleshooting or or not? Because one of the things that we hear contributes to automation is not just time savings, it's not just reduction of toil to use sort of the Google SRE terminology, but it's actually also removing the human error piece of it. So so can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I think that when in that particular situation, because we were between a rock and a hard place, and by a rock, I mean uh, Japan, and by a hard place, I mean a typhoon that's in between us and Japan. So uh, we, you know, at that time when you're setting up, you are the internet. You know, you go out, you are you are the, the key to Google. So when you have a problem, if you, you can't Google it, it's not there. Um, and that's one of the big issues. You know, there is no stack overflow. And, and actually one of the things that the team after us, uh, or after that first deployment started doing is creating our own local uh, wiki so that we could say like, hey, if you run into this problem, this is what we did, this is the solution for it. And then basically loading that onto every single image that we would deploy that way if we didn't have the ability to go to the internet, we at least had our own local resource. But uh, at that time, like you're on the phone talking with people who are trying to batten down hatches, who are trying to like secure things and make sure that, you know, you are the least of their worries at that time. And the connection is garbage. The, you know, the, you're, you're only, you're only limited in what you know and what you can figure out. So yeah, after the first 24 hours, it's it's literally just this pattern of I'm going to work on this for a little bit and then I'm going to have someone else come and work on it for a little bit while I just try to stay awake and take care of other things. And hopefully some inspiration on what to try next will strike or hopefully the next person behind me figures it out. And we basically just go through that cycle for two days until finally it's like oh everything's up and running thank goodness all right now someone has to bite the bullet and do watch while the rest of us go to sleep right okay so so then this was also for you this was a major lesson in system resilience oh yeah definitely okay and when you think about translating so one of the things that i find fascinating about working with veterans, and I'd like to work with more veterans, um, is the the mixed ease and difficulty that is so situationally dependent on translating their previous experience in the military into sort of, is it okay to say civilian life? Is that, is that the right term? So, so, then, so then, like for you, what have been the challenges and times when it hasn't been so challenging what have been your sort of failures and successes um because i definitely and i'm using the term failure because i don't think that we talk about a failure enough as a community um but what have been some of your successes and failures with translating your military experience into your civilian life so the biggest success is the ability to teach and train others in how to accomplish the goal uh, we used to have a saying, you know, we need you to keep the Barney. And if you think about it, like very simple, short, 
uh, concise, straight to the point. And it's important because, I mean, for me, like I said, we would go out for three months and basically we would unload about 100 different Marines. Uh, our team would have about 10, 15 different Marines. Uh, our individual shop would have maybe four of those 10. And the general idea was this time next year, I'm leaving, you're in charge. You have to learn everything that I know. And that is that's the circle of life in the in the Marine Corps. Uh, that's how they teach you. Uh, it's it's funny, the people that, you know, one of my drill instructors, you know, the people that we grew up to, well, we spent, you know, boot camp with and grew to fear, uh, I deployed with. And it was like such a different perspective because at the time, you know, they were being a quote unquote hard ass on us, but at the same time they had to. Because now while he's out deployed, the people that he trained are now the drill instructors training the, that next group. So the ability to not think of myself as I, I have all the secrets, I have to hold on to everything, didn't do that. There was no way that I could do that. And I think going into the public sector, I saw a lot of that and I was able to avoid the allure of, like we mentioned earlier, looking like the superstar because all the secrets, all the cards were kept in hand. And, you know, for me, it was like, I don't care who knows what I'm doing. I don't care if they know about the process or what it took to get there. All I know is I got to get the mission accomplished and I got to make sure that people behind me are able to accomplish the mission when I'm no longer there. Uh, the biggest failure I think the biggest failure turned into my greatest success, which is what productivity in tech came to be. Because when you are in the military, everything is regimented. You're told when you have to be up. Uh, depending on if you're deployed or not, you're told when, you know, it's time to turn off the lights. You know, you're told when you have to be home. You were told, you know, where you can go, how far, you know, how long you can be out there, uh, who you have to take with you. Uh, everything is so regimented that when I got out of the military and I, I, you know, got to my cubicle for the first day, I was like, okay, well, guess I'll just wait for my boss to come in and uh, kind of give me my, my briefing and let me know what needs to be done so I can do it. And the boss doesn't show up and then comes in and goes, oh, well, how was your first day? And you're like, uh, great, I guess. And you realize after that's happened for about a week and you're just like, I haven't done anything. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you realize that no one is there to set the schedule. No one's there to dictate uh, the pace of what's happening. You, you've been given your missions when your mission, when you got hired, you got to do it on your own. And if you don't, well, they're just going to replace you and put someone else in that can. And out of fear of being fired is what became my passion for productivity and figuring out the best ways for me personally to do things and and just understanding that when i write three lists you know do this or you're fired if you do this or have someone else do this or you're fired or if you do any of these things no one's going to care and if you don't do them still no one's going to care 
I mean, that's called a priority matrix. That's that's the do, delegate, fur, and delete. You know, it there's a name for these things, and the sooner you can learn about those things, the better you're going to be in the long run. And I, yeah, I think that had I not had that experience of just being shell shocked going from the the military space to the private sector, yeah, there wouldn't be a pit. There wouldn't be, you know, my focus and productivity. There wouldn't be me talking about automation and stuff. So so for you, this is so much more than a labor of love. This was like this was like this was an outgrowth of who you are. Yeah, this this was it started as this is how I feed my family. And this is how I continue to feed my family and to progress in the industry. Now, I've I've since gotten out of the IT space. Um, I now like my day job is in marketing now because I, I just realized and, and maybe this is another uh, side effect of actually it definitely is a side effect of coming from the military. I just learned th there's no one's going to die at the end of the day if I don't do my job. And I mean, for you, it's a little bit different. You're in the healthcare industry. There might actually be people that die if you don't do your job. But for me, I lived a very real uh, life in the military. I never had a combat deployment. Thank goodness. I, I don't think I'm the type that would hold up well in a kill or be killed situation. But the opportunities that I did have were all humanitarian based. Uh, again, the area that we served and operated in was always overseas and was always in a typhoon prone um, area. In fact, while I was deployed for those three years, I want to say that we had at least two, if not three typhoons every year. And after each one of those, there was always some type of support mission that we had to provide. And the longer we didn't do our job, the longer that there were people out in a devastated area that didn't have food, that didn't have running electricity, that didn't have places to sleep that were, you know, safe, that didn't have good health care or good medical treatment. So the stakes were very. At the end of the day here, it's funny, I, I test a lot of my stuff now like uh the pit website for instance a good is a great example i'm building the engine that creates the pit website i'm actively building it now it's up you can go visit it but i'm building it and the thing is if i mess something up and it's broken i just go okay and then i i basically freeze production at a point where you can't tell and then i just you know, work on it at my leisure because at the end of the day, no one's no one's going without food. You know, it, it no one's dying over it. So there's no reason for me to get worked up. I deleted the entire pit podcast from my host uh, last week by accident because user like, I guess UX is a problem in certain fields. But that's another story. At the end of the day, I figured someone's probably got a backup like they're they I mean, as many podcasts as they have, they have to have a backup you know, plan. So let me just send them a customer ticket, shoot out a tweet. And then at the end of the day, it's like someone will respond back in, in time. But for now, I'm going to bed, <laughs> you know, like no one's no one's dying over this. Huh. 
So, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that in healthcare, denial of care from the benefits perspective is is a very real concern for a lot of people. Um, I confess that I am lucky that I don't have much to do with the business. Um, the way I describe it is um, they kind of sponsor my research and I build them software in return, which is something that I would have done anyway, um, which is awesome. So, so I guess my final question for you is, you know, what's the last thing that you automated? Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. So if, if I'm being liberal with my automations, I would say last night I modified the template for creating new projects when, uh, one of my video editing clients submits content. Uh, basically the way that it works is, you know, I, I use Basecamp as I mentioned before. And Basecamp is great in that it's simple and there's power in simplicity, but there's often, you know, some of those headaches of, I wish it did have a little bit more power at times. And it does. I just haven't had the time to, to dive into it as much. But one of the things is I have a client that gets a lot of content from other people and then puts it together and then sells it as a course. So my job is to edit all that content and turn it into what people wind up consuming on the internet. And it's often, it's great for me when I get the little notification that says, oh, some files have been added to Dropbox. And I know that, oh, that's my client with some more work for me. So instead of going through that process of setting up my, you know, my task list, letting my wife, who is also my audio engineer for the for that particular project, uh, know like, hey, there's more work to be done. I just have a Zapier trigger that fires and does all that for me and, and just shoots, you know, all the notifications out, creates the project, does all that stuff, loads it from the template and all that runs. Um, if I were being, I guess, more active in the automation process, I would say uh, one of the biggest tools that I have at work is I call it the pill, uh, the pill marketing images library. Uh, so the P-mill, if you will. And our marketing department handles all of the asset management for uh, the products that we sell. And I work for a, a distributor of like janitorial supplies for the West Coast. Uh, actually the largest distributor uh, for them. But that means we have some 12,000 items that have to be maintained. And in that we have a very extensive cataloging process and we have to for regulate, you know, regulatory reasons. So for me, that that means I have to send, I have to store the original file in one location. I have to store the print version, high res JPEG in another location. And then I have to store the low res web image in two locations, one for our web catalog and then one for other services as necessary. Then I have to upload those images to the web catalog, which is another process. Um, 
And finally, I have to reach back out to the person that uh, gave me the content saying, hey, thanks. Uh, so what that looks like now is a large string of Python scripts that make good use of the, uh, again, Python imaging library or pill. And yeah, I think that is that's something that I've been using now for almost a year. And I've been slowly adding steps. Like I said, being able to do steps beforehand, being able to do steps after the fact. Um, so yeah, I did some more work on that this uh, over the week. So yeah, I think those are probably the last two things that I really did in the automation space. Wow, that's awesome. And by the way, you described it as if this was a ragtag, you know, group of Python scripts. But to me, it sounds like you have a pipeline. <laughs> I mean, it really it really is like it's it's just one. It's one script that calls like five functions. And those functions are basically like, all right, make sure that your computer is connected to all of these different volumes because it they have been known to, to fall off. So, you know, make sure that they're connected and then, all right, take the original image, create a copy of it just in case, and then move it over. All right, now take that copy, make another copy, shrink that copy down and, you know, convert it to a JPEG that's CMYK. Now move it to this other volume. Did that work? Okay, good. Now take another copy of that and then collapse that down to an 850 by 850, you know, grid convert it from CMYK to RGB and then move it to this folder and move it to this folder. Okay, great. Now open up this URL, provide these login credentials, go to this specific page and then process a form with this image as the attachment. Then go to the image or item publishing uh, section of that same website still logged in. So maintaining your session, uh, tell it to update and modify and then tell your catalog to re-index. And then after all of that said and done, run this quick shell script that opens up Outlook, send these keyboard commands to open up a new window and then type this stuff in. So, it, I mean, again, it is, it is a, when you run it, it doesn't seem like it's doing all that much, but when you think about each of those steps, imagine having to open Photoshop and manipulate like six images like that by itself takes 10 minutes just dealing with Photoshop. So for me to be able to do all of that programmatically, click a button and then all of those things are done within the span of about 20 seconds. Uh, yeah, my my supervisor actually was like, so how do we make this so that the whole team can use this and not just you? And I was like, well, I'd like to do more testing. <laughs> C-Man automation, it's a beautiful thing. It is. And, and, and again, like we were saying, you know, being able to share it with others is what makes uh, what we do so awesome. Uh, at the same time, I, I do think that there is a level of responsibility. Like if you're going to put something out in the world, at least either A, create some type of testing logic for it or B, let people know that you're not going to create testing logic for it. So they know to either A, not trust the tool or B, create their own testing logic for it. Yeah, I mean, process in general gives you enough rope to hang yourself with. 
but I would yeah. say that that automation with computers then lets you hang yourself at high speed, right? Oh yeah. Cool. All right. Well, listen, Jay, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let me